0: morning we're going to take a little break from Romans and begin a little Christmas couple Christmas messages and uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning usually we teach through books of the Bible here at Grace Bible Church but occasionally we take a little break and uh, do some topical items and uh, one of those times is around Christmas time. I never have been able to get a book that I'm teaching through line up perfectly with the Christmas holiday as much as I've tried. Uh, so it, it never works out that way. But as we uh, look to God's Word this morning, uh, Luke chapter 2, um, let's read the first couple verses here, verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Who was with child? And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to the firstborn son, and to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. As you draw closer to Christmas, the time that we celebrate here in America, December twenty fifth, ask yourself how many pictures you've seen of Christ how many pictures you've seen of Jesus, maybe even this past week. And that's a good thing. Praise the Lord. Uh, Among all the Santa Claus stuff that's going on, the tinsel and the advertisements, and reindeer and uh, presents, and the cards that we'll send out, it gives us a little bit of a reminder of why we celebrate this time of year. But when you stop and you look at those pictures, whether you're in a grocery line or driving down the freeway and see a holiday holiday, picture of Christ on a bulletin board somewhere, Um, probably most of the pictures that we see are pictures of the the crash, the manger, and you see little baby Jesus as this infant in the manger, maybe the little baby Jesus is being held by Mary, Um, possibly maybe even some shepherds, wise men looking on, despite his stable surroundings, the baby is plump healthy, perfectly clean, and comfortable. And it's good to see those kind of pictures. They're good reminders, I think, that when we celebrate this time of year, it's all about the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the birth of this little baby, uh, rather than just celebrating Santa Claus. But I want to ask this morning, who is this little baby? Who is this child? that was held by Mary, that was worshipped by the shepherds, the wise men. And I want to give us basically five answers to that question this morning. And to aid your memory a little bit, I just put them in alphabetical order B through F. And Jesus as a baby, Jesus as creator, Jesus as dying savior, Jesus as empowered Lord and Jesus as the final judge and returning king. These are all pictures of Christ, as we'll see this morning. And so in our first point there, Jesus as a baby, we read here in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And when you look at verse 7, I always find this interesting because it says, And she gave birth. Short, sweet, simple, she gave birth. Mary, a young girl, a virgin, a woman who had never had any sexual relations at all with a man, gave birth. I hope you understand that wasn't the miracle. <laughs> the fact that she gave birth. That was not the miracle. The conception was the miracle. The conception of the Christ child in Mary's womb was the miracle. But there's nothing here in the text to indicate the birth was any different than any normal process of birthing a child. Some of you who've been in the labor delivery room with your wife at the time of birth, you understand what it's about. You know what a woman goes through to give birth to a child. And Mary gave birth just as many of the other women here in our church and even back then gave birth her water broke she began to have contractions she probably felt overwhelmed by the process that was going on inside her body no doubt her back hurt that's one thing women always say there was pain there was effort there was sweat there was pushing and stretching and burning And then finally, amazingly, this little baby, this little creature came forth from her body. This little baby, newborn baby covered with mucus, amniotic fluid and blood. His hair probably plastered to his head. Maybe his head, maybe even a little misshapen from the hours of pushing. His skin, blushing color until the first breath. And then that little cry. Mary gave birth. And the baby, Jesus, came into this world just like you and I did. Through his mother's strong efforts... yet so beautiful. Well, what's the point of all this? I want to share with you this morning that Jesus was a baby. (laughs) He was a baby. He was a normal baby. He was born in a normal way because he was really, really human. He really was. Some people like to say, well, Jesus was 50% God, 50% man. No, he was 100% man, 100% God. And this was a baby who (coughs) soiled himself, no doubt. Probably spit up occasionally. Cried when he was hungry. And What's amazing to me is this little baby, the God child, was completely, completely and utterly dependent upon his parents for meeting his every need. Just like your little babies were when they were first born. When you have a little baby, that baby is dependent upon the parents to care for their every need. They can't feed themselves. They can't change themselves. They can't move themselves. They can't clothe themselves. Jesus could do nothing for himself as this little child that was born that day. And I'm sure when his mother, Mary, held out her hand and maybe held her little finger, her finger up to his little hand, he probably grasped that finger just like your little newborn child would. There's no way he could communicate with his mom and his dad except by crying, as most little babies do. This little baby probably took months to learn how to crawl, And even more months to learn how to walk. And even more months to learn how to communicate, how to speak. Because Jesus was a normal human baby. And yet he was God. Isn't that fascinating? Secondly, Jesus was born to this poor family. Who was in difficult circumstances, no doubt. I'm sure... Joseph and Mary, like any parents, would try to do their best to make their newborn baby comfortable and safe and clean. But if you know anything about a stable, if you know anything about a manger, it's not really a sanitary place. My brother Tom used to be a farmer, and I remember going down and watching him feed the cows and the hogs, and I just thought, how disgusting is this? It took every desire for beef or pork away from me when I saw them in that mud and just, it's like this turns into bacon. How does this happen? This wasn't something I was cut out for. They're filthy. Occasionally they'd get a hose and hose them off and you know what the pigs would do? They'd go right back into the mud and they'd just be dirtier than they were before. Well, you think of this little baby Jesus born to this poor family Under these difficult circumstances. There's one thing a pregnant woman doesn't want to do is go on a trip. Especially on the back of a donkey. (laughs) That would not be your first order of business if you were nine months pregnant expecting to deliver. Hey, let's go on a horseback ride. I don't think you would do that. And yet that's exactly what they did. They went on a long trip. But I wonder, in this manger, how far they were from any water. How'd they clean them up after the birth? Did they just wipe the stuff off them? Or what did the manger look like? I mean, this manger had been a repository of grass and hay falling from animals' mouths for years. And yet here he was, the little baby Jesus, the God-man, born to this poor family under these difficult circumstances. And then thirdly, we see that Jesus was born with the appearance of illegitimacy. The appearance of illegitimacy. I mean, even though Mary had this visit by the angel Gabriel and all that, I'm sure most people back then didn't believe her story. Probably thought, okay, yeah, right, she's kind of trying to save face, made up this story. Most Of the people, no doubt, who saw Mary, assumed that she became that way through the normal, uh, who saw Mary pregnant, uh, assumed that she became pregnant through the normal process. And yet this stigma of illegitimacy followed Jesus, followed this little baby all of his life. Look over at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I just want to show you what, you what I mean. You know, when we look at our society today, one of the problems, I think, in a lot of our societies is this very fact. The fact that babies are being born out of wedlock without the proper mother and father model. And unfortunately, because the government has grown so cold toward the things of God. Uh, they don't care if it's a, just a mom raising a child or a dad or a mom who thinks that she's a dad or maybe a dad that thinks that she's a mom or maybe two moms or maybe two dads. To them, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. But there's something to be said about the stigma of being an illegitimate child. And this followed Jesus all of his life you think that, boy, something like that would go away. Well, it didn't. Look at John chapter 8. Look at verse 39. Jesus is having a confrontation here with the Pharisees. And uh, right before that, in verse 37, he says, Hey, I know you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my words find no place in you. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him and they said this. You can just kind of hear the sarcasm in their voice. Abraham is our father. In other words, who's your who's your dad? We all know what went on. 30-some years ago when you were born. Your mom and dad weren't even married. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Verse 40, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Verse 41, You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus' response, he says, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. Because he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are what? Not of God. What an incredible response. But you see them pointing the finger saying, Wait, you're talking about a father? You're illegitimate. We know who our fathers are. We weren't born out of sexual immorality. So he lived with that. He lived with the idea that he was an illegitimate child. And I'm sure Joseph and Mary had to deal with that as well as a couple. And so he was a baby. He was born to this poor family. He was born in the appearance, with the appearance of illegitimacy. But he was a normal baby, just like any baby that you have ever held or gave birth to. And yet he was still God. Secondly, the Bible tells us, look at John chapter 1. The Bible tells us that not only was Jesus a baby, he was also the creator. He was the creator. He is the creator. It's so important that we see this. The Bible tells us that Jesus was much more than just this human baby. Uh, The normal human baby that Jesus was actually contained the creator of everything we see. It says in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John here purposely, he echoes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It actually takes us back to that text. It tells it's telling us here in John, in the beginning was the Word. The Word already was, even before creation, is the idea. The Word was with God. It says the Word was God. So he begs the question, well, who is the Word? What does John mean by this expression? Well, he answers that question down in verse 14. If you read a little further, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became, what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word is Jesus. Jesus was God in every way. Jesus was with God from the very beginning. So, when we think of the birth of Christ, we don't think, oh, that's when Jesus began. No, Jesus existed before that. That's just when he took on a human body. I want you to understand that little baby, that little baby Jesus, the child who was unable to care for himself, he was God himself. Isn't that amazing? Charles Wesley writes it in a carol, and he says this, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus what? Our Emmanuel. So Jesus is God incarnate. He is is God taking on human flesh. But there's still more. Because John tells us that this same Jesus, the same one that was clothed with humanity, is the creator of everything. (laughs) He created everything around us. It says, apart from him, nothing came into being. The NIV says, without him, nothing was made. I mean, just stop and imagine this for a second. Those same little infant hands which grasp Mary's finger. came from the same being that created the stars the same voice that cried out when she, when he was hungry cried after his birth was the same power that named those stars one of those stars is called the pistol star near the center of our galaxy It emits six seconds as much energy as our sun emits in a year. Its its mass is more than 100 times that of our sun. Think about that. Its diameter is about 200 million miles, they tell us. So if you positioned that at the center of our sun, the pistol star would be more than fill our entire earth's orbit. And yet, those little power behind those little hands, those little infant hands of Jesus, were the ones that made that that star. It's amazing when you stop and you think of the truth of the incarnation. We get so used, I think, to hearing words like, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, God in the flesh, they just kind of roll off our tongues, off our lips, you might say, but we fail to fathom the truth that's behind those words. The one who made our galaxies, he became infinitesimally small in that little baby compared to all that he created. The one who had all glory, all power, all purity and praise. He's the same one who became, the Bible tells us, he was despised. He was poor. He was needy. He was helpless. The one who was before the world began, became this tiny Seemingly insignificant speck in that world. So Jesus the baby is also Jesus the creator. Incredible truth. But it doesn't stop there. Back to Luke chapter 2. It tells us that this little baby who was the creator also became Jesus the dying savior. Look at verse 8. Luke 2, 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. That's what shepherds do. They protect the flock. They do it 24-7. doesn't matter when the enemies are coming. A shepherd who's concerned for his flock is willing to to put forth the effort to protect the flock. It says in verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. You say, well, why were they filled with fear? I guarantee you, if an angel appeared to you, you would be filled with fear as well. It's a supernatural being. It's amazing. And you notice here... Verse 10, and the angel said to them, Oh, wait, wait. You mean he didn't speak in angel talk? No. No such thing. The Bible says that he spoke very clearly and distinctly in the dialect of the shepherds so they could understand him. So the next time you hear someone who speaks in tongues saying, Oh, it's it's angel language. All you got to say is chapter, verse, show me in the Bible where an angel spoke in a way that did not communicate to the people that he was speaking to. Yes, I said he because angels are male. Always. You've got to get away from this angel worship today. People have angels hanging on from their dashboard, hanging in their house. I don't think that brings honor to God. Angels were not meant to be worshipped. Angels worship God. We don't need to be worshiping angels. But it says that the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I got a message for you. I got a message that's going to rock your world. It's going to fill up your heart with joy. And it's for all the people. Notice that. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a what? A Savior. Who is it? It's Christ the Lord. And this is going to be a sign for you that you will find this little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. And saying, I'm sure if you weren't scared by one angel, you might be a little frightened by all the angels, the great big choir. And they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them, notice where they went into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, uh, let's, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Just a little bit of a glimpse of the majesty of heaven we see here. Only a little bit. And when they just see a little bit of the majesty of heaven, their hearts are filled with fear. So the angel explains to them, hey, don't be fearful. Wait a minute. Let me explain some things to you. I brought some good news. I didn't bring bad news. And this good news is not just for you shepherds who are out here in the middle of the night protecting your flock. It's not only for the people of Israel, but it's for all people. What's the message? What's the good news? The angel said, there's been born for you a Savior, a Messiah, the Lord. See, centuries and centuries before this, the prophets proclaimed that God would send a Messiah to save his people. Finally, after years and years of this promise being looked forward to, the Messiah was born. The problem was... The Messiah was not some political king that they were looking for. But instead, he was a Savior. I mean, after they initially heard this angel proclaim this truth to them, that a Messiah was going to be born, a Savior, I bet you they thought, well, I'm sure... I know where he'll be born. Maybe in a palace somewhere. Among the rich and the wealthy, I'm sure. So when they got down to verse 12, where it says he's going to be laying in a feeding trough for cows or animals. They probably thought, wait a minute, this, this humble, poor little baby is the savior of the world? So what does the angel mean when he says he brings good news of the birth of a savior? The question begs, what's he saving us from? I want you to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And this begins to prepare our heart for our communion time. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Go back to verse 21. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. While he was here on earth, he suffered, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Wait a minute. I mean, when we commit our lives to Christ, we commit our lives to suffer for him? Yes, <laughs> that's what the Bible says. Doesn't say that you follow Christ and boy, you're going to get more money, you're going to get more wealth, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be blessed. Doesn't say that, it says you will suffer. I was reminded of this. Yesterday morning, I got called out for a chaplain thing. A little seven-month-old baby had died. And went to minister to the family at Kaiser Hospital. And a single mom. Obviously, their family had gone through a lot of suffering. Not just with this child, with other children. And I had to remind her. She was clutching that little seven-month-old baby in her arms in the ER room there, trying to explain to her that eventually the coroner's going to show up and they're going to ask some questions. And hopefully they'll release the body to the family and the mortuary can come and pick up little Nina and prepare her for a memorial service. And that mother was suffering in such a way she just could not let go of that baby. And I remember her holding that child with her face close to hers and because of some of the medical procedures, the baby was, he wasn't clean. She wasn't clean, it was bloody. And at one point I looked at the mom and I was talking to her and she had the blood of the baby all over her lips because she'd been kissing this baby. And I thought, boy, you know, I can't imagine, I can't begin to imagine what it would be like to have to go through that kind of suffering, human suffering. I was able to share with her in the Old Testament when David lost his child that he was going to go see him again one day. And she was from a Protestant faith background, So they were receptive of prayer and ministering and and it was neat to have that time there. But eventually came the time when she had to lay that baby down and walk out of that room. And I thought that's got to be something that any parent would never want to do is go to a hospital with their child and have to leave never seeing that child alive again. Well, It tells us here that Christ suffered. He laid an example down for us of how to suffer. Because don't think we're not going to suffer. That's a lie from the enemy. We're going to suffer. And so he says here that he laid down this example so that we might follow in his steps. Well, what were his steps? If you look back at verse 18, it kind of gives us a little indication. He, Peter says, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if... When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's what Christ did. Christ lived a perfect life. It says in verse 22 that he committed no sin. Not once. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was truthful in everything. It says in verse 23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Boy, if we could only do that as humans, as Christians, if we could only get a handle on that, that we could continue to entrust ourselves to our Father, who judges justly, not take up our own cross. I mean, not take up our own offense, but take up our own cross and endure it enjoy. Because we know that this is part of God's plan. It's part of God's will for us. Verse 24 says, He Himself, very personal here, He Himself bore our sins, In his body, on the tree. See, the idea here, this wasn't a a blanket sacrifice. I'll just go to the cross and just die for everybody and that's it. No. Jesus died on the cross. It says he bore our sins. Our sins were the ones who put him, that put him on the cross. His righteousness was put on us. That's what we've been learning in Romans chapter 4. It was credited, credited to us, to our account, not because of something we've done, but because of what he did for us. So that we can say, as Scripture says, now by his wounds we are healed. Speaking of spiritual healing... Notice it says, by his wounds, we have been healed. Something that was done thousands of years ago on a cross still has effects that play out into our life every day. By his wounds, we have been healed. A lot of people look at that and say, yeah, that's talking about physical healing. And why do you still get sick? talking about spiritual healing. Talking about reconciliation with the Father. I mean don't think for a second that Jesus hung on that cross so you'd never get a little cold. It's not the, that's not the picture, okay? It's a little bigger than that. He died for our sins. And you know what? He died for each of us specifically. people today that believe that Jesus made this general payment and somehow if you can just put your faith in Jesus' general payment that you'll be saved. No, the the death of Christ on the cross was specific. It had to be. Because those who are saved, it's not a general group of people, whoever may come, you know, whatever, whoever shows up to the party, gets the hat, you know, it's not that way. The Bible says that even before the foundation of the world, God somehow in his sovereign choice chose some for salvation. That's a hard truth, but that's what the Bible says. And yet, this good news is meant for everybody. It's hard to make those two truths come together, and I don't think we can do it in our fallen mind But remember, when you see that baby in a manger. He just didn't grow up to be a man who just simply simply went around doing good deeds for people. As some people believe. Who was Jesus? Oh, he was a very good man. Yeah. Did a lot of good. He didn't grow up to be a man who simply healed a couple hundred people here and there from physical diseases. We know that to be true. but he healed everybody else, but actually he died himself. (laughs) That baby did not grow up to be only this great teacher that we know about through the scriptures who had an incredible penetrating insight into the human nature and went on to teach us how to live. He did all those things, don't get me wrong, but he did so much more that baby, that human child with all the cuteness and the difficulties shared by all babies, that very person lived a perfect life, beloved. He lived a perfect life, sinless in every way, only to die a terribly cruel, painful death on a Roman cross. And I think every pain of That nail, those nails being driven into his hands. Every drop of blood caused by the thorns that were pressed deeply into his skull. Every stripe on his back from the whips that they flogged him with. All that was caused by you and me, by our sin. And even more, God himself, the second person of the, 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 the Trinity here, the one who was with God before even time began, endured and felt the wrath of God. All the, the hatred that God had for sin fell upon him. All the wrath of God fell upon this totally innocent Sinless Savior. So the pain that Christ went through was physically excruciating. But there was so much more than just the physical pain that he went through. All the punishment that we deserve for every evil deed that we had ever done was laid on Jesus Christ. The baby in the manger, the creator of the world... He is the dying Savior. And He's dying that we might live. Well, Jesus is not just that, but He's also the empowering Lord. He's the empowering Lord. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. Because Jesus not only... Saves us from our sins. But he actually enables us to become his beloved people. So he doesn't just stop there at saving us from our sins. He continues to care for us. And Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But what? Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh, how do I live it? I live it by faith in the Son of God. Who is he? He loved me. He delivered himself up for me. You don't lose half the story. Jesus not only died on the cross, he rose from the dead, right? You've got to remember that. He rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, none of this makes any sense. These little crackers and this grape juice is meaningless. The whole purpose of celebrating Christmas is meaningless. And the Bible says after he rose from the dead, now he takes up residence in the hearts of all of his people, those who follow him by faith, by grace. Loving us, empowering us, enabling us to live Lives that are righteous before Him through the power of the Spirit. Think about it. The one who made all the galaxy that we see, the vastness of everything around us, He loves us, He cares for us, He wants to be personally involved in our lives. Why are we worrying about money for retirement? Why are we worrying about this? Why are we worrying about that? I mean, we have a God who's caring for us each and every day. The one who created the sun, the moon. The one who knows the number of the stars in the universe. He knows the number of hairs on your head. If this one lives in us, why do we worry about it? Missing out on life? Why do we worry about possibly losing our job? Why do we worry about taking care of our family? When this very God is empowering us, the empowering Lord within us frees us from worries and frets. And He allows us to trust in Him to provide our every need. And that allows us to be radically devoted to him. And to live lives different from the world around us. That's that's the draw. That's the catch. When people see you going through suffering and going through heartache and seeing you in a situation that seems impossible, and yet your faith is like a rock. You're standing firm on your Lord and Savior. And you're saying, you know what? I may not like this place, but right now this is where God has me, and I'm going to wrap my arms around it with all I can get and learn what I can through this trial, through this tribulation. And we go to God and we cast, what's the Bible say, all of our cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for us. He cares for us like nobody else could care for us. He enables us to love those who are unlovable. He enables us to do what would seem logically or humanly impossible. We have to see that Jesus is this baby in the manger, He's the creator of the world, He's the dying Savior. And he's the empowering Lord, but he's also the final judge and returning king. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. This same Jesus, this creator yet infant, crucified yet risen, ascended yet he's going to return, And when he returns, he will not come as some weak, helpless little baby, beloved. But he will come as the final judge for all mankind. Look at verse 11, Revelation chapter 19. When I saw heaven open, John writes, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. I am the truth. We know who he's talking about. If you don't know, verse 13 tells us it's the word of God. The same word that we read about in the book of John. It's Jesus himself coming back as the final judge and returning king. I mean, he's so glorious. He's almighty. He's all powerful. More than anybody can ever even understand or comprehend. But here he speaks of a different use of that power. In verse 11, it tells us that he comes to judge and to wage war. Those same eyes that stared into that mother, Mary, the morning he was born. Those same eyes that wept over Jerusalem. It describes those same eyes that are now aflame with fire as he comes in power and might to smite the nations and he exhibits the almighty wrath of God on all unrighteousness you might say well why is he why is he so mad why is he coming in wrath didn't you just tell me that he himself bore the wrath of God on Calvary didn't you just say that he took upon himself the sins of the people Didn't you just say that every cut of the whip on his back, every rip of his flesh, served as a punishment for our sins? Why why is there this angry, wrathful situation coming back to judge sin? Didn't Jesus pay the penalty for the sins of the whole world? Look at Revelation 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, that's lovely. (laughs) What a promise. One hand, he's wiping away our tears. He's making all things new. He brings an end to all the pain. But verse 8 tells us. For the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. They will have their place in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What that tell us? That tells us that everyone will not be saved. There's people that believe, oh, God died for the whole world. He's going to save everybody in the end. Everybody. It's universalism. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible teaches. Everyone will not share in the great joys described in those earlier verses. It depends upon your being among the people in verses 3 to 7. Not among the people in verse 8. I mean, when you stop and think about it, nothing really matters in the end, does it? It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter about your education. It doesn't even matter about your job or your income or your house. You know what? It doesn't even matter about your family, beloved. I mean, think about it for a second. Think if you had the choice. You had to make it right here this morning. You had to choose poverty and suffering in this life. And then life with God for all eternity as described in those verses 3 to 7. That's one choice. But there's also a second choice. You could have all the riches, all the pleasures. You could have everything you want that the world has to offer with everyone and everything at your beck and call. But when your living body gives up its last breath and you enter into death... You will end up with the people, in verse 8, in the lake of fire. Ask yourself, which one would you choose? Which one would you choose? That's what it depends on. It's absolutely vital. It's important for us to know how we will end up with God wiping our tears away versus Him throwing us into the lake of fire. That's a pretty important Question. What's the difference between these two categories of people? The answer is found throughout the Bible. But it tells us in verse 8. Who are these people whom God punishes? He gives a long list of sins there, but the foremost among them is a sin of unbelief. It's a sin of the unbelieving. It's the unbelievers who are thrown into the lake of fire. What about the people in verses 3 to 7? They're the people who become the bride of Christ they're the people who delight in him as a husband delights in his wife who delights in God and who becomes his people it tells us verse. God brings to himself those people who have never committed sin is that what it says I mean, if that's the message, if the people in verses 3 or 7 are the people who never committed sin, we're all in a world of hurt (laughs) because we've been going through Romans and everybody has sinned. Amen. We're all sinners. But that's not what it says. What is the requirement for being among these glorious people in verses 3 to 7? Look at verse 6. It says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to who? I will give, this is the key, to the one who thirsts. He gives to us from the spring of the water and he does so without cost. So the requirement here, beloved, is not sinlessness. It's not religiosity. It's not seeing how many times you can make it to church or how many times you can serve in the nursery or how many times you can help the homeless. The requirement is thirsting. John Piper put it this way. If we only knew it, every one of us is stranded on an ice face in Greenland. And the wind is blowing fiercely. Our position is so precarious that even if we inhale too deeply, our weight will shift and we will plunge to our destruction. God comes to us and he says in that moment, I will save you. I will protect you from the storm. But there's a condition. Your heart sinks. You know you can't meet conditions. Your face is flat against the ice. Your fingernails are digging in. You can feel yourself giving way. You know that all, that if all you do is move your lips, you're going to fall. You know that there is nothing you can do for God. Then he speaks the gospel command. My requirement, he says, is that you hope in me. Is that not good news? I mean, what could be easier than to hope in God when all hope is gone? It's all that he requires of us. That's the gospel. Our God is the God who loves to save. He'll never turn away a desperate person who comes and calls upon him. He displays what he is like. He glorifies himself. And then he bestows that great mercy on the undeserving, the weak, the helpless sinners such as you and I. So who is this Jesus that we celebrate in a couple weeks? He's the baby in the manger, a real human baby. He's the creator of the world. God himself became man, the one who fashioned the universe in human flesh. He's the dying Savior, taking all the sins of his people upon himself so that the penalty is paid. For all those sins. He's also the empowering Lord living in the hearts of his people, empowering us to become and overcome the, the enemy and become like Christ but he's also the final judge and returning king, coming in majesty to do, destroy and throw into the lake of fire those who oppose him coming in love to create a new heaven and new earth for those who long for his appearing to be honest, in the end, there's only two categories of people, beloved. Those who see Jesus as the most precious thing above all else. The only source that will satisfy their deep thirst for righteousness. And those who don't. Jesus offers the greatest satisfaction imaginable. The opportunity to become what your creator intended you to be. To fulfill all your potential in Christ And most of all, the opportunity to delight in God and to have Him delight in you for all eternity. That's what Christmas is about. And I ask today, this Christmas, even today, would you put your faith, your trust, your hope in Him? Will you thirst for Him and Him alone? Will you turn your back on the pseudo-pleasures of this world? All that it throws at us day after day? only to trust him completely, to watch over you, your family, to satisfy you, to please you? Will you ask God to give you the greatest Christmas gift imaginable, the gift of an eternal joy in his presence? Because Jesus is coming back. We know that to be true. For you, his return will either be the greatest delight imaginable, Or certainly, the most terrifying expectation of judgment. Which will it be? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you that this little baby Jesus that was born, that we celebrate, was so much more than that. Lord, as we turn our hearts to our communion time together, Father, I pray that we would understand the suffering that Christ went through on our behalf. It wasn't because he did anything wrong. He did absolutely nothing wrong. He was perfect in every way. And yet, he desired to and he fulfilled his father's promise in every way when he went to that cross. And upon him was laid our sinfulness, our unrighteousness. He owned it. The Bible says he even became sin for us. He took upon himself every sin that was ever committed by those who would ever put their faith and trust in him. I pray this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, it can be as simple as raising your hands to the heavens and crying out and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to put my faith, my trust in you. Help me in my unbelief. Empower me to see the truth. As only you can. Draw me to the Savior. I pray this message for believers would ring true in our heart as we go out into this lost and dying world and that we could share the message, the life-giving message, the hopeful message, the joyous message of the gospel. That we'd be bold in our witness. Because our times will soon come to an end here on this earth. And I pray that when we meet our Savior in heaven, that we will hear those words, well done, good, and faithful servant. We Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.